You know what we need? Shiplap. I want Shiplap in the Oval. Monroe, big Steely Dan fan. Like, just start yelling Krampus and then bayonet him. <laughs> well, his last name starts with an M. Yeah. And he's from Virginia. Hey everybody, welcome to the Presequential Podcast, where we go from 1 to 45 in under 90 and discuss each president's life, legacy, and little-known facts about them. I'm Ryan Allward, and joined as always by... Blaine Zimmerman. How are you tonight, Blaine? I'm fantastic. Yeah? You smoked some wings on the grill today? I, I did. Real dad mode today. Yeah. Do you do any sauce on the wings? Mm-mm. No sauce? No. Do you do like a dry rub or anything? Mm-hmm. Sure do. You know who didn't do a dry rub on his wings? James Monroe. That's who we're talking about today. This is episode five, which we are calling, Blaine? The Unopposed. And we'll get to that Yeah. a little bit later down the line. Approximately 1820 is when we'll... uh get there. This week, we read the book James Monroe, A Life by Tim McGrath, not Tim McGraw. Correct. Uh, 752 pages long, Glenn. It was a doozy. If you include all the index and everything. Is that 752? Yeah, the readable part is 586. Oh, wow. What was I doing when I... Here, let me just uh, edit that. 586? Yeah. And I think this is the last real tome we have until Lincoln... Yeah. This book is approximately the size of a human head, a, yeah. a grown adult male human head. It's a large book. It's it's weighty. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to call it a tome is completely accurate. Uh, we're we're approaching, let's say, three thousand pages read at this point. Mm-hmm. I don't have the exact tally. Do you? Do you no, I know last week we went over two thousand, and this is another six hundred almost. So we got the close. one. Yeah, yeah we're there. Uh, as always, uh, here on the Presequential Podcast, as we're recording, we enjoy a cocktail in honor of the POTUS that we're talking about tonight. We're drinking a delightful red uh, that our friend Russ, who you'll hear from, got us tonight. This is a uh, James Monroe enjoyed French red wine. Yes. Yeah. Because he served over there as minister to France for a while. Uh, let's see. Let's grab that bottle. What do we? This is a. Uh, this is our finest 2018 Louis Jadot Beaujolais Villages. <laughs> I'm sure that's not how you pronounce it. Bougie but, uh, Villages. Yeah, bougie. Uh, it's it's delightful and it's red and it goes down easy. So James Monroe, this one's for you. And uh, wherever you are enjoying the Presequential Podcast. Uh, Maybe you're sipping on a cocktail of your own. Cheers to you. Hopefully you're not driving. That's right. Uh, Blaine, what do you remember about James Monroe from social studies back in the day? Zero. Yeah. Yeah, I don't remember ever covering him. Anything. Mm -hmm. I barely remember the Monroe Doctrine. Oh, well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Duh. Yeah. (laughs) I do. Yeah, I do remember the Monroe Doctrine. I think I remember hearing about him during the Manifest Destiny Day Mm. in social studies, but barely. That mm, those two things don't line up. The, <laughs> Maybe I was thinking of a different one. <laughs> yeah, because manifest destiny is essentially us saying like God says we're supposed to go west. We're doing but it. The Monroe Doctrine was uh, we don't want any more European people coming in. And Correct. Over to our continent. Don't mess with us. Yeah, that was the That's, actual first. Pretty crass way of putting that, but yeah, <laughs> it was the first. Don't tread on me, flag. <laughs> don't mess with us. All right, you ready to dive in? I put my swim cap on. James comes from, or came from, Welsh, Scottish, and French ancestry. They settled in Virginia in the mid-17th century. He was born on April 28, 1758, in Westmoreland County, Virginia. His father, Spence, not Spencer, Spence Monroe, uh, was a moderately prosperous planter and slave owner who also practiced a little bit of carpentry on the side. His mother, Elizabeth Jones, married Spence Monroe in 1752 and bore him one daughter and four sons, of which James was the eldest. 
Might be one of our smaller families. Yeah, because Madison had like 11 brothers and sisters or was one of 11. I don't think Washington's family was huge, but I think Jefferson's was, but a lot of them died. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if Adams had a lot too. Yeah. I mean, they named a town after the family. Cold Massachusetts winter will help you in that department. At age 11, young James walked five miles each way to school. Uphill. Barefoot in the snow. Both ways, kids. Yeah, somehow it snowed in Virginia. (laughs) Uh, He would have his books in one hand and a musket in the other. He was known in his family for being a great shot and often would bring game home for family supper. Yeah, I imagined him as a kid. Like Davy Crockett, coonskin hat, yeah. with the one with the um, the raccoon tail on the mm-hmm. back. Yeah. Yep. During these formative years, he befriended John Marshall, who would eventually become Secretary of State under President John Adams, fourth Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and one of the most influential justices in American history. So on the way to school and back every day, we've got two very influential early American people there. So by age 16, right around the time he was getting his driver's license, <laughs> I'm sorry, um... <laughs> Monroe was orphaned uh, when both of his parents died within two years of each other in 1772 and 74, and he was forced to withdraw from school to care for his younger brothers. His mom's brother, Joseph Jones, didn't have any kids of his own, and he took James and his niece and nephews in under his care. Uh, Uncle Joe was a member of the House of Burgesses. And he exposed James to state government and politics in Williamsburg at a pretty early age. In Williamsburg, James enrolled at the College of William and Mary. The tribe. And what? The tribe. The tribe. Oh, that's yeah. right. They're they're one of the few mascots. They, they come up a lot. Without an S at the end of them. There's so many William and Mary grads early on. Shout out to Steely Dan, by the way. William and Mary Waldo. Ooh, do you, uh, My Old School is the name of that Do song. you think that that's the college that they visited in reeling in the years where the weekend at the college didn't turn out like they planned? Mm, Maybe they were at William do. and Mary. We need to do a Steely Dan podcast. Well, they were at William and Mary. Yeah. Monroe, big Steely Dan fan. Yeah. Loved it's always them. been my biggest beef with Steely Dan is if you were a genius, how could one weekend at the college have upended your life? Mm. Do you want to talk about it? Or you not just right now. Okay. We're not right. the appropriate place. If you have maybe, no idea who Steely Dan is. Maybe for our Patreon, we'll do an episode <laughs> about Steely Dan. There you go. If you don't know who Steely Dan is, what is wrong with you? Uh, he was around the likes of Patrick Henry. Give me liberty or give me death. Uh, Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. By the way, Blaine, if our listeners wanted to learn more about her Jefferson or Washington, where could they go? Uh, scroll up. Mm. <laughs> You'll see. Just a couple episodes. Episode three and one. That's right. While he was there, what, his first year there at 17, yes. seized an arms room. Yeah. And tried to get uh, the chief housekeeper fired. Pretty bold. And... Ended up getting in trouble for that. Yes, this was in response to the Intolerable Acts in 1774 by the British Parliament, which was in response to the Boston Tea Party. And he and some of his college buddies, they just said, hey, you see that arsenal over there? Let's go read that. That's ours. That's ours right now. Halfway through his second year at William & Mary, James dropped out to enlist in the 3rd Virginia Regiment in which he served as second-in-command and lieutenant to Captain William Washington, second cousin to George. Under Captain Washington, Monroe saw action in the Battle of Harlem Heights in New York in September of 1776. Uh, This was a fun fact that I came across doing a little bit extra research after I read the book. Have you seen the, you know, the famous painting of Washington crossing the Delaware? Do I? (laughs) It's right behind you. I have shorts. <laughs> yeah, you do. With painting on them. That's right. Yeah. 
Well, though Monroe is depicted as holding the American flag behind Washington in the famous 1851 painting by Emanuel Litza, he was actually part of an advance unit that crossed the Delaware before General Washington the night of December 25th, 1776, to launch a surprise attack on an encampment of Hessian soldiers. They were German mercenaries on the British side. They weren't we, German. They were not German. Germany didn't exist. They were Prussian, yeah. I think. Can we just talk Hessian. a little bit? What? Hessian. They Hessian. were hired hands. What did I call them? Hessian? Hess, Hess, well, whatever. Sorry. I might have said it wrong. Oh, I'm okay. just saying. They, For one, they weren't German. That's one of the things. Germany didn't become a country until like the late 1800s. Got it. And those guys weren't really tied to a country. Like they may have been from there, but they were hired mercenaries. They just like to make money fighting. Yeah. 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 Britain was like, hey, guys, come on over here. There's this little thing called America. It's like the precursor to Blackwater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting point there. Can we talk just for a second about how awesome it is that Washington decided on the night of Christmas to do what he did that night? Yeah, he was like, go show him what's up. Let's bring the spear to Krampus. Like, <laughs> do you know the story of Krampus, by the way? No, Dude, but it he, is he probably explained it to his gut. They were like, what are you talking about? And he's like, they know. Sir, he's I'm like, a little confused. They all know. Like, just start yelling Krampus and then bayonet him. <laughs> I'm confused, sir. Do we yell Krampus when we get to the other side or when we're on the boat? Anyway, Washington's army was down to only 2,400 men. It's 10% of its original strength. He's on the run. It's freezing. There are murmurs about replacing him as commander, and everything is at stake at this moment. The weather is even working against him. Uh, I, I learned that the password for the crossing was victory or death. Mm -hmm. That's awesome, man. We still have those. Oh, yeah? We should say. It will tell us why you know that, Blaine. Because I'm in the arm, the yeah, National yeah. Guard. It's still practice to have a running password. So, like, if you're running towards a patrol base or a, an outpost, okay, and you're trying to get back in, you have to know the running password. There's also a number combination. So, wow, you, it's always an odd number. So you shout a number, and they have to give you the appropriate response back to get the number combination. So, if it's thirteen and I said six, you'd say seven. Wow. If you said like twelve, I'd shoot you. Oh, gosh. Um, yeah. And then there is a challenge in password, which is really fun, especially when you're in a training environment, because the challenge in password, you'll have two words, but you're not just supposed to like say the one word and the other person say it back. You're supposed to like say it in a sentence hmm. and then the person comes back with a sentence. And so a lot of times in training, what will happen is like the instructors will forget that. <laughs> and so <laughs> they'll give you the challenge in password and you'll be like, on guard and you'll see one of the instructors coming and you'll be like if the challenge and password is like fire and water okay you'll be like i think i saw a fire over there and they'll be like what where <laughs> <laughs> sir uh, you're not supposed to say that and then well and then you shoot them and they're like what what's going on like <laughs> after they've been shot the password well, you didn't get the password right sorry <laughs> i think i saw krampus cro crossing the river Oh, man. Okay, back to Krampus James. Krampus is now going to be my running password. It should for be. Trent. Yeah. yeah. That, the whole story of Krampus is weird. It's an Austrian folklore thing where he kidnaps children into the forest who've been, been naughty. They've been very like, naughty. They've tied knots. They've tied knots. Okay. Wow. You know what? I feel like we should segue now to the Battle of Trenton, which happened right after Krampus uh, and General Washington came over yeah. the Delaware there. Uh, during this Battle of Trenton, Monroe nearly died due to didn't, a musket ball. Didn't go well for him. Did not. Took one in the shoulder. Woo. Uh, it severed an artery in his shoulder. He recovered, was promoted to captain, and was tasked with returning to Virginia to recruit soldiers 
to his command. Let's let's unpack a little bit the Battle of Trenton, though, if you would like to, being the resident soldier, if you want. I don't have very detailed notes. Yeah, go on ahead. It. That's fine. So you're going to have to like start the prompt and I'll go from there. All right. Well, if you don't have it's fine. We can just keep <laughs> trucking. I just have shot and shoulder at Trenton. Yeah. Yes. So sorry. If you were expecting us to unpack Trenton, mm. we're, it sounds like we're going to move on we're, to yeah, we're gonna move potentially on. a courthouse. Yes. You could literally say, though, that he bore the weight of the revolution in his shoulder for the rest of his life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and he was a relatively unsuccessful recruiter. He was. Uh, I do remember that. And I do remember, like, it was obviously hard to recruit people at that point. But Yeah, it wasn't really a, uh, we weren't necessarily on the, the best part of the Revolutionary War at that point. And also, he didn't necessarily have the means to successfully recruit a lot of people. Yeah, and when it got out that, like, they weren't being paid, they didn't have blankets, they didn't have food, like, people were like, no, I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. I'm going to stick to f- trying to make this corn grow. Yeah, they're like, fish and chips isn't that bad, actually. Yeah, it's all right. I like red. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like, why do we need dinners? He turns to Uncle Joe to help him advance professionally. He gets appointed to the staff of General William Alexander, or Lord Sterling, and becomes buddies with uh, Lafayette, the Lancelot of the Revolutionary Set. Mm -hmm. Serves in the Philadelphia Campaign of 1777, which was a tactical British victory, but a strategic American one. And he endures the infamously harsh winter at Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, where he shared camp with his old friend, now Army Lieutenant John Marshall. Hey, John, remember that? Remember how we'd walk 10 miles a day? John's like, you know what? I want I want to be a judge one day. Yeah. yeah. Judge, like, judge could be cool. He's like, what's a judge? What do you mean? What's a Supreme Court? What, what do you mean the Supreme Court? Is yeah, that like, like sausage, pepperoni, black like, olives? Peppers? Okay, John. Okay. <laughs> All right, man. You keep dreaming. <laughs> anyway, I thought that was kind of fun how their, their stories came together again there. Uh, shivering cold together at Valley Forge. Uh, Monroe fought in the Battle of Monmouth the following June. Monmouth Courthouse. Monmouth Courthouse. Battle of Monmouth Courthouse. Mm-hmm. That's right. Resigned his commission in December 1778 and met back up with Uncle Joe in the nation's capital at the time of Philadelphia. So our listeners that know our Hamilton background, and those of you that have seen the play, the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse is the infamous General Lee, everyone attack, retreat. There it is. Yeah. that's And Washington was amazing in that battle because he rolled up in his white horse mm. everybody's running away and he's literally like charging towards the front beating the crap out of people being mm. like get back up there or i'll kill you mm. and they famously tied it was a draw it was a draw and that's another word for tie mm. i mean we're using soccer terms yeah it was a draw football yeah yeah they didn't even go to a penalty kick shortly after arriving in philly uh, to meet back up with his uncle joe monroe returned home to virginia to try to get his own command of one of the four new regiments that the state had raised in response to the recent British capture of Savannah, Georgia. He had letters of recommendation from Lord Sterling, George Washington, and Alexander Hamilton. It's pretty strong. Yeah. Those are pretty strong <laughs> letters of recommendation. That's pretty good LinkedIn yeah. approval there. Yeah. yeah. It's like, well, these guys are uh, covering for he me. He was endorsed for leadership, <laughs> Excel. Surviving <laughs> arteries being blown away in his shoulder. <laughs> Excel spreadsheet. But... <laughs> Uh, he was probably for the first time in American history, in yes. the short amount of American history, uh, penalized for being from Virginia. How so? Let's unpack that. So the reason that he was not able to be given a command was because there were already too many Virginians in command. Correct. And Hamilton propped him up to be in charge of one of the uh, black battalions that John Lawrence wanted to prop mm-hmm. up, but then Congress ended up 
shooting well state legislators not congress yes ended up shooting that idea down so i didn't know that yeah i read the book but i must have just forgotten that that's why i take different notes Gosh, than you do i love you so much uh he received the promotion of lieutenant colonel and command of one of the regiments recruitment however continued to be an issue for monroe so he took uncle joe's advice and he sought out to study law in williamsburg under now governor your boy Tommy J. Yeah. Thomas Jefferson, who promoted his protege to colonel and placed him in command of the state militia. In October of 1781, much to James's chagrin, he was not called upon to serve in the Yorktown campaign, which ended in his fellow Virginian, General George Washington, maybe you've heard of him, receiving Lord Cornwallis's surrender, effectively ending the Revolutionary War and starting the peace negotiation between the U.S. and Britain. Cornwallis kind of sounds like an Irish dish. Like it's something you would have on St. Patrick's Day. Do we have any more Cornwallis? We're going to have shepherd's pie with a side of Cornwallis. Mm, Pass the Cornwallis, please. It does. You're right. Cornwallis. It just hit me. I'd never thought of that before. Cool. Anytime those thoughts come into your head, just shout. Yeah, I'll just... Please. That's what I'm here for. In 1782, James is elected to the Virginia House of Delegates and the Congress of the Confederation in November 1783, which was somewhat of a precursor to the Continental Congress. For the next two years through 1783, James resumed studying law under Jefferson, not because he really wanted to be a lawyer, but because he thought it was his smartest path to social and political influence, not to mention wealth, which he always found himself in need of, like many of his fellow Virginian land and slave owners. Yeah, I think and I think that's kind of been a precedent that the presidents, so it's been a presidential... It's a, it's a presidential precedent? Yeah. Presidential, wow, hmm, weird that a lot of presidents have taken. Like, if you want a career in politics, you have to at least have a law degree. I don't know the numbers, but I would assume that over half, if not closer hmm. to 80 or 90 percent of our presidents, have a law degree. Someone look that up. Okay, yeah, we'll get that. We'll get on that. Producer Russ on it. That's right. In 1784, Monroe took an extensive trip throughout the Northwest, which at the time consisted of Western New York and Pennsylvania. The tour convinced him that the U.S. had to get British posts out of the region if the Young Republic were to expand in the westward direction. Monroe actually was influential in writing the Northwest Ordinance, under which Ohio, Indiana, go Hoosiers, Mm -hmm. Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, and eventually Minnesota uh, would join the Union through. So that tour on horseback out there in the wilderness. Well, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about some of his other expansionist policies, but I almost named the episode The Expansionist because of that. There are certain things that we'll talk about here in a little bit. Okay. He doesn't get quite as much credit for how much, from a pure land mass perspective, mm. that he's responsible for. Yeah. In 1785, Elizabeth Courtright caught James's eye while he was serving as a member of the Continental Congress in New York. And on February 16th, not long after, 1786, 26-year-old James and 17-year-old Elizabeth were married at her wealthy merchant father Lawrence's home in New York City. After a brief honeymoon on, on Long Island, <laughs> I just wanted to say that, Long Island. We vacation in florida every year yeah and there's a woman named norma norma uh from <laughs> long island yeah uh and that's i mean that's exactly what she sounds like that's how she says yeah. long island does like, she like tap her cigarette as she says like where y'all from yes yeah. you from the, oh, oh, oh indiana huh? yeah always oh, that she's a peach man yeah. she's like one of our favorite parts of vacation norma yeah from long island hopefully she's... uh by the next episode i will have gone there mm. and i'll have a norma story for you. Norma, we know you're listening. Thank you for all your hard she work there in Florida. Yeah. Just 
manning the inn that the Zimmerman family stays at. Yeah. Where in Florida did you guys go? Sanibel. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. Her uh, her husband is a retired postal worker, and okay. I've heard some great... So Jenny's family's vacation there for years. Our listeners really care about this. Yeah, yeah. I've heard some great stories of some poolside fights her husband started over nice. like a radio being too loud, and it's just a fantastic experience. <laughs> Turn that rap music down. That's actually Norma's voice and her husband's voice at the same time. But let's go back to the brief honeymoon on Long Island. The Monroes return to New York to live with Daddy until Congress adjourns. Their first child, Eliza, was born in Fredericksburg, Virginia, soon after their marriage in December 1786. As a member of the Virginia House of Delegates in 1787, Monroe actually voted against the ratification of the Constitution. For a number of different reasons. Do you remember why? Uh, wanted a bill of rights. He did. And term limits for the president. Yes, as well as the federal government's power to tax citizens without their consent, among some others. And though, uh, though Monroe resisted and voted against it, it was actually passed by Virginia, the 10th state to ratify the document. Shortly after the ratification process, Monroe is bested by fellow Virginia James Madison, hero of episode four. For a seat in the first Congress. Famously, in the debate, as they were running against each other, Madison got frostbite on his nose. And uh, (laughs) one of the stories from the book that I really enjoyed was a group of people carried this dude like on his deathbed to the polling place just so he could submit his vote for Monroe. Okay. Like he's like literally like he can't walk. He's sick. He's yeah. about to die, and he's like, in my last effort, I will vote for James. It and they were like, no, which James? Which James? Like, <laughs> well, his last name starts with an M, yeah. and he's from Virginia. <laughs> they were like, we're, we need more. And then he just died going, Monroe. Yeah, he probably had yellow fever. He might have. That was very much in the norm to just die of yellow fever back in the day. I don't know if any of our listeners will be, re- be able to relate to this. But the, with the yellow fever epidemic, which we've discussed in previous episodes, yeah, um, both the Republicans and the Federalists yes. had separate cures for it. Um, hmm. I don't, I, I don't know why. That Wait, yeah, what sounds, year was this? It was seventeen eighty three. No, certainly it was twenty twenty. I don't know why you'd say that. <laughs> uh, I love it when epidemics become uh, political. Yeah. Don't you? Yeah. Soon after, he is bested by Madison for a seat in the first Congress. He is actually elected to fill Virginian Senator William Grayson's seat after Grayson's death in 1790. So suddenly he finds himself in the Senate. As a young senator, Monroe quickly became a leader in the fledgling Democratic-Republican Party and stood by Jefferson's side in opposition to the Federalists such as Hamilton, who believed in a strong central government. In 1792, this was interesting, quite salacious. There's a $5 word. Monroe became involved in the Reynolds Affair with Hamilton. Oh, want... we got to back up though. You skipped France. Oh, no. I thought France was uh, 1794. Was it? Okay. Sorry. I must no, have okay. my notes. Yeah. Well, this is when, this is when I think he and a couple other guys approach Hamilton and find out about oh, it. Oh, but not. Not the... the uncovering of it with calendar. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. So he's, he's, no, it's okay. He sent them, don't, just don't ever do it again. Well, because the Reynolds affair ended up lasting like almost a decade because they, they were like, hey, we've got this on you. And then he was like, actually, I didn't do anything illegal. Yeah. And then it died for a while and then came back. Whereas he didn't do anything illegal. Are you talking Monroe or Hamilton? Hamilton. Yeah. Okay. Well, Monroe might have said, well, I've, I've taken notes of these interviews 
And I've sent them to a good buddy of mine. He's got a vault in Virginia. It's at his home called Monticello. Maybe you've heard about it. Yeah, that comes up. I'm just going to send these to Jefferson, your arch nemesis. Uh, A copy of those notes on the interview, the private interviews with Hamilton, got to scandalmonger James Callender, which we'll talk about in maybe a little bit down the line. In 1793, James... No, we already did. Yeah, we we did. Yeah, he's dead. He's dead. Yeah, well, in, I guess... I mean, he's, he's dead not now. in the. He's definitely dead. You're now. talking in the narrative. Yeah, in the narrative, he's not dead. But from we've already discussed his whole kind of story arc. Yes, ending in the river. I'm not quite dead yet. <laughs> I think I'll go for a walk. I feel happy. All right. 1793, James purchases the 1,000-acre estate adjacent to Tommy J at Monticello that he names Highland. The family officially settled there in 1799 and lived there for the next 25 years until 1825 when, spoiler alert, Monroe had to sell the plantation due to personal debts. So we have Monticello, mm-hmm. Montpelier, mm-hmm. or Montpelier. Montpelier. And Highland. Highland. <laughs> like, you they had to come give on. him grief about that. Like, give him a better, like, come on. Couldn't come up with an M word? Yeah. He's like, I mean, it's, it's on a hill. Just call it, like, Monroe Family Farms. What are you doing? <laughs> what What about Monrovia? And he's like, no, I've got bigger plants. I've got bigger <laughs> I know you haven't heard of Liberia yet. <laughs> Don't worry. We're getting there. In 1794, Washington appoints Monroe as minister to France, where he received a standing ovation for his address at the time, two-year-old national convention that praised republicanism and used his influence to secure the release of Thomas Paine and Lafayette's wife, rode the carriage, rode the the ambassador carriage all the way up to the jail where she was being kept. So knowing that he fought at Harlem Heights, what was that? Uh, That was your dog, Dirk. Knocking over the, the book. Knock. We're not going to edit that out. That is how big the book is. <laughs> he did He did not it. makes it that loud of a noise when the book hits the ground. <laughs> Knowing that it was Harlem Heights? Mm-hmm. Harlem, okay. Knowing he fought at Harlem Heights and that he was an ambassador to France. Yes. Is it safe to say that he was the first Harlem Globetrotter? Wow. Wow, you went there. Yeah, you heard it here first. James Monroe in French parliament like throwing buckets of confetti and they thought it was water (laughs) throwing trick shots off the Capitol. wow he's really really good (laughs) wow yes he was a harlem globetrotter yeah just dunking on the generals Mm. well washington wasn't a huge fan of it uh he actually recalled Monroe from France in 1796 because basically, you know, the U.S. and Britain passed the Jay Treaty, which outraged the French because it was very pro-Britain. It was, I think it was trying to reclaim trading rights. It was trying to establish peace through trade, right? Mm-hmm. And the it French made, did not yeah. like that. So Monroe didn't like that either. A lot of the Southerners didn't like the Jay Treaty. Correct. Yeah. So Washington recalls Monroe. He comes back home. He returns to his farming, legal, and political pursuits back home in Virginia. Shortly after he comes home from France, here we go, Calendar publishes the accusations. So he publishes them in 1794, or I'm sorry, 96, against Hamilton, who then challenges Monroe to a duel, to which Monroe replies, quote, I'm ready, get your pistols, end quote. But Monroe's second, Aaron Burr, was able to defuse the situation with Hamilton's second, and then, spoiler alert, Burr kills Hamilton seven years later. And then he's a treasonous traitor. Yeah. Yeah. And a garbage human being, I think, is what you that said. I think, yeah. Blaine Zimmerman, yeah. 2020. Yeah. Oh, look, we've got an email from Burr Family <laughs> Descendants at gmail.com. I hate your podcast. Fine. Fine. <laughs> 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 uh, 
1799, Monroe is elected governor of Virginia following in Jefferson's footsteps. Also in 1799, a son, James Spence Monroe, shout out to dad, was born to Monroe and Eliza, but sadly he died 16 months later in 1800. Yeah, circle of life, because Washington died right around the time his son was born. Ooh. I always like in in these studies seeing where the narratives overlap. So Washington dies it's right around this time. Early on. Yeah. Like we've this is actually our last independence yeah. president. Well he is I mean, he's like the, the last of the founding fathers. Yeah. Well, yeah. Madison lived longer, but yeah. Truth. In eighteen hundred, as governor, Monroe calls out the state militia to suppress a slave rebellion led by a free man. I, I believe I can't remember if Gabriel was a free man or not. I can't remember. Anyway, it was a slave rebellion led by a man named Gabriel, uh, originating on a plantation six miles from the capital of Richmond. Gabriel and twenty-seven enslaved people who participated were all hanged for treason under Monroe's watch. Yeah. So I didn't take a bunch of notes about this, but as you brought it up, I remember vividly like being fully engrossed in that story and yeah. being like uh gabriel's the man yeah like, check it out gabriel's rebellion yeah if you want to learn was, more about that it, that dude was awesome i wish i would have taken more notes about him and the reason i didn't was because i was so hooked on yeah. the gabriel story that yeah. i didn't want to stop and write stuff down yes but yeah i mean if you have time the gabriel rebellion that guy yeah. was the dude Meanwhile, in 1800, Monroe uses his influence as governor to appoint election officials to help Jefferson win the presidency. As we discussed in episodes three and four, Jefferson appoints Madison to secretary of state and Monroe is set up as a viable successor to the Jefferson dynasty. His gubernatorial, I just love that yeah, word. I love that word. God, isn't it good? Gubernatorial. Tenure ended uh, in 1802, so we only served as governor for three years. Soon after, Jefferson and Madison tap him as minister to France again, where he, along with New York diplomat and founding father Robert Livingston, secured the Louisiana Purchase in 1803 for a cool 15 mil. Although he was only authorized up to $9 million, uh, it didn't matter because Jefferson was pretty cool with it, though he really wanted Florida. We've talked a little bit about that in uh, yeah. in the Jefferson and the Madison. Well, and I, this is one of those pieces I wanted to talk about was that he negotiated the Louisiana Purchase. Like he was the, the main person that negotiated yeah. it, but Livingston was kind of a snake in the grass and made sure that he got all the credit for it. Yeah, and Monroe was like, buddy, what are you doing? Yeah, it was like completely unnecessary. So now he's expanded the Ohio Territory, which goes all the way through Illinois up Wisconsin, I I'm think, sorry, part did, of Minnesota. Did you say Illinois? Are you one of those people that say Illinois instead of Illinois? I, say yeah. it again. Just say it again. Illinois. How do you say the word P-I-L-L-O-W? Pillow? Okay, good. I've got a friend from Chicago who calls it pillow. Oh, okay. He says milk. I'm sorry, but you were talking about the Ohio territory. Stealing my thunder here, Livingston. Um, <laughs> so he westward expanded all the way through, let's call it Minnesota, okay. negotiated the Louisiana Purchase, yep. ends up, and we'll talk about getting a little bit more when he finally gets Florida, yes. and then goes even further west with Missouri, which, if you look at the size of Missouri now, look at what the amount of land the Missouri Correct. Compromise covered. Like it's It goes basically to Oregon. It's massive. It's huge. Yeah. So he was, like I said, just so responsible for, or at least had a hand in so much land expansion. Yes. And luckily, I would say for him, he wasn't responsible for actually what we did with that land. Right. Yeah. He, but he was he was the guy talking with the yeah. French envoy or whoever it was. Yeah. We're a few presidents away from the sad 
the sadness yes. of what actually had happened with those lands. But yeah. Are you foreshadowing to Jackson? <sighs> yes, yeah. I think so. But I think that Westward Expansion, that's a pretty good time to take a break. Let everybody take a breath. Let's do it. Okay. And then when we come back, we'll talk about 1808 in Madison, or am I skipping ahead too far? Oh, you're not skipping ahead too far. No. Enjoy your time off. Listen to this fine words from our sponsors, and we'll be back in a few seconds. Have you ever opened your pantry and wondered, what am I going to do with these 32 half-used Yankee candles in here? Listen, home decorating can be hard, especially when you've got a thousand other things going on. You need the Jealous Neighbor. My sister Heather started the Jealous Neighbor to help homeowners use the furniture and decor they already have in their home, add to it on a budget, and discover the home they've always wanted. Whether you need help just sprucing up your home's entryway or you need your entire first floor redecorated, go to facebook.com slash thejealousneighbor to schedule your consultation with my sister Heather. She will guide you through an hour consultation in person or virtually, help you assess the furniture and decor you already have in your home, and give you a plan to take your home from bow to wow. Get an hour of redecorating with Heather free when you mention that you heard about The Jealous Neighbor on the Presequential Podcast. Go to facebook.com slash thejealousneighbor today. Hey friends, we're back. Thank you for joining us again here on the Presequential Podcast. We're talking about POTUS number five, James Monroe. When we left off... In 1803, Monroe is appointed to become the minister to Britain when New York Senator Rufus King resigns. In 1804, the last of Monroe's children, Maria, was Rufus. born. Rufus! Rufus! <laughs> he, he took a phone booth there. That's right. Wow. Nice. I'm proud of you. Yeah. Uh, he would remain in the role with Britain for four years until 1807 when he returned home to fanfare and celebration Even in though, like... Really nothing happened. Eh, not yeah, much. Not a whole lot. Not much. Yeah. Uh, he settles down a bit back in Virginia in 1808. His neighbor, uh, Madison, is elected as Jefferson's successor, which was sort of a testy time between the three men. Specifically, Monroe felt snubbed by Jefferson for supporting Madison over him. But the two eventually reconciled. So. Yeah. And this is something we talked about in the Jefferson episode that they essentially sat him down and they were like, hey, we're, you're up next. Don't worry. Yeah. Um, we, Your time is coming. Yeah. We hate patriarchies, but we're OK with doing it as long as you're not related. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Uh, flash forward a bit. Monroe is reelected to governor of Virginia in 1811, but he serves only for four months when he is tapped by now President Madison to secretary of state to work out a deal with the French and the British to stop attacking American ships. France pretty much agrees. Britain, however, not so respectfully uh, agrees. They respectfully, actually, they don't even respectfully decline. They just say, nah. Actually, they were like, no, thank you. Yeah. And you wonder if this is a little foreshadowing to the Monroe Doctrine. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Or he thought, okay, I'm going to. Yeah. He's like, I'm going to pack this away. Yeah. Yeah. You can see him licking his pen and just writing something down in his moleskin journal. You could. Yeah. Monroe and the Warhawks in Congress tell Madison that Congress, hey, we're going to approve a call to war if you go for it. And thus begins the War of 1812, which they couldn't find a better name for, apparently. Uh, The war didn't really go well for Madison overall. John Quincy Adams later is sent to conduct negotiations with the British in Ghent, Belgium. And uh, I think now's probably a good time to bring in our... Oh, so I do. I want to... We were going to... Tarantino the episode here a little okay. bit we're going to talk to Russ about the about his vice president even though we're still a few years away but yes. he was the secretary of war originally yes. he was replaced by Armstrong Correct. and then he became the secretary of state which we all know means you're about to be president yep. and Armstrong was famously the one that screwed up and got the capitol burned because Correct. he said no no 
They're going to Baltimore. Eh, yes. Don't worry about us. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. But because of the, the major tie-in with Monroe's vice president to the War of 1812, I thought this was probably a good time to bring Russ in. Yes. And we'll, we'll kind of... You know, jump ahead in the story and then come back. So, Russ, what was your uh, major tidbits? Bringing in our expert on the vice president. Specifically, Vice President Daniel Tompkins. But at the time of the War of 1812, he was the governor of New York, thanks to DeWitt Clinton. Once again, mm. he weaves in and out. Actually, Daniel Tompkins was, versus his predecessors, he was actually born two years after the publishing of the Declaration of Independence. Hmm. So, he was, so he's real young. He's real young. He's okay. just a baby. Yeah, he was. As the governor of New York, he was also, as Blaine said, a strong supporter of the War of 1812. Uh, when I say supporter, it's mostly financial supporter to his detriment. Oh, okay. yeah. So he wasn't a war hawk necessarily. He was not a war hawk. He, uh, not he was a, a literal, he was like an athletic supporter. He was, <laughs> he was a booster, if you will. Yeah. Well, he was a militia supporter to start with. Okay. And to support the New York militia, he not only used his own savings, his own personal funds, but he also took loans out as well. I mean, this day and age, it'd probably be payday loans. Like he, he was very fervent financial supporter, but he was not a very apt financial manager. Hmm. So he wanted to throw as much money as he could at the military effort, but he was not great on keeping records of things, hmm. which it seems to be a problem. Yeah. It seems to be a real problem, especially since because of his like financial devotion, he was made the chief disbursement officer of military expenses during the War of 1812 because he was a wartime governor of New York. Hmm. And he's just out here making it rain on the militia like. He was making a rain on the militia, on the Continental Army. So he was he was given a million dollars on behalf of New York and then three million dollars to disperse on behalf of the rest. Oh gosh. Yeah. Wow. Correct. And that's a lot of money back then. It is a lot of money. <laughs> which he did disperse the problem, two problems. One was he would if the Senate was not in session in order to improve funding, he would go ahead and take out more personal bank loans hmm. in order to fund it. And he was not good with documentation. So he would spend his money. He would disperse the government's money, but would not have receipts <laughs> Wow! regarding where he spent it. So, uh, so that's why it's so hard to get expense reports done right now. hundred percent. Because of this guy. He's just, he sounds like the shrug emoji when it comes to where did all this money go? He's very much. I just looked it up. $4 million in 1812 is $105 million now. Wow. Yeah. No receipts. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't, I I don't know. Why does his horse look so nice? (laughs) (laughs) Like that's the Cadillac of horses. What's Cadillac? I, I think it's a Fine. city in Michigan. What's Michigan? <laughs> he was in the election originally running against Monroe. What's this guy's name again? What's it, Tom? Daniel D. Tompkins. Danny D. Tompkins. What D stands for. All right. Was Probably he related Daniel. to Paul F.? He was Paul F. Tompkins is a direct descendant. Oh, really? Is he? I just threw that out of my butt. That's absolutely not true. He just made it up. I mean, it could be true. (laughs) He just made it up. They're both from the Northeast. Paul F. Tompkins is a very dry comedian. Very dry. There it is. (laughs) Even during his vice presidency, smash cut forward, the states began asking for documentation of where all their money went. Okay. So he started having settlements in court against him. So that was even at the beginning of his vice presidency, he had 
quite a substantial financial burden from all the money that he let rain all over the military effort, which plagued him for the remainder of his vice presidency. And I can only imagine plagued Monroe as well. Monroe did jump in and levy Congress to provide $60,000 to cover all of his, the settlements that were against him. How much money is that in those terms? Well, it's less than $4 million. Yeah. And so didn't reimburse him. Sure. So maybe he had some receipts. Yeah, maybe a couple. And basically the financial burden plagued him for the rest of his vice presidency Mm. to the point where he used it as an excuse to not, I think he was only in Washington a quarter of the time Hmm. uh, to preside over the Senate. Because of all his financial burdens, he needed to stay in New York, up here in court. Yeah. Wow. And his attempt to purchase real estate in order to, in Manhattan and Staten Island, earn the money back, wow. which did not work out in his favor. Did he ever go to Long Island? Well, see, right. some Staten Island. Oh, Staten Island. Wu-Tang, yeah. man. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he was basically... Bridge and Tunnel, though. Wu-Tang. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He was the original Wu-Tang. <laughs> he, he was the Danny original Danny D. Tompkins. <laughs> It just sounds like he belongs in Wu Deck. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he was not a very effective vice president for that reason. Doesn't sound like it. Nope. Yeah. He was in New York, even for the Missouri Compromise, which he was supposed to be presiding over. He wow. left mid debate to go back to New York. Wow. Bold. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at least we know about that now. And we always appreciate your input, Russ. And I think that it's, it's, very well received, and uh, I appreciate the energy you bring to the podcast. It's always to Russ, <laughs> yeah, to and Russ. the beard, by the way. Thank you so much. Nice, cheers uh, to Russ, and to Vice President Tompkins, mm. who unfortunately died penniless, but his ancestors live on by being on VH1 shows <laughs> like I love the '90s. Wow! Oh, that's Paul F. Tompkins. He's the guy that wears the suit. Yeah, yeah. okay, I know who yeah. he is. Yeah, Russ, thank you. Uh, we talked a little bit about the British burning the capital in 1814 under Madison's watch. Whoopsies. Uh, Madison appoints Monroe to Secretary of War, which he serves out for like a week before he resigns. But Congress couldn't find a replacement until February of 1815. So Monroe is basically serving as a Secretary of State and War at the same time. Till Armstrong came in. Till Armstrong. Came I like in. that we can, the microphones pick up everything. That's the wine pouring. Yeah. Let's not blame it peeing on the picks up everything. Yeah. Monroe did a good job calling. as Secretary of War, ordering General Andrew Jackson to defend New Orleans, uh, which boy did he. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then some. Pretty successful. Uh, he asked Congress to draft an army of 100,000 men. He increased soldiers' pay as Secretary of War, and he established a new national bank to ensure adequate funding for the war effort. Yeah. And I I mean, I think there's a lot to be said for having someone who fought in the war yes. to be the Secretary of War. So he understood what was important. So increasing pay yep. with his experience when the soldiers weren't even getting paid, like he's like, no, 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 like we got to make sure we take care of these guys. If morale is high, the fighting is better. Yes. That's interesting. That's an interesting insight that I didn't really, I didn't really catch when I was reading this narrative. That's why experience is important. Mm, I love that. You put a pin in that because that's going to come up in tons of episodes later, I'm sure. Fresh off the success of his role as Secretary of War and the war coming to a close, which the U.S. celebrated mostly because of Jackson's efforts, Monroe then ran for president in 1816 and defeated Federalist Rufus King, uh, who I think was his predecessor to minister to Britain, receiving 85% of the electoral vote. 
Very popular. He moves into the White House that, boy, does it need some repair. <laughs> yeah. I would say he didn't move into the White House immediately. Also, first president to do his inauguration speech outside. Was he? Yeah. How did I miss this? That's cool. Yeah. And now they're still outside. But his was just because they had to be. Like, there wasn't an inside. So, (laughs) it had to be outside. Over here is the fireplace. We don't really (laughs) talk about that. We're going to paint it white. Don't worry. Don't worry about it. So he moves into the, uh, he doesn't move it, but he occupies the White House now. Monroe is a president in his first term, at least. He had a pretty geographically balanced cabinet with John Quincy Adams as Secretary of State. Hey, good job on ending that war over there, guy. Over there in Belgium. Thanks for doing what you're doing. Come be Secretary of State. Had to manage the uh, Reno. Yes, of the he White did. House he without did. having like Chip and Joanna around, like he said, is <laughs> it wasn't out. really a magnolia <laughs> yeah. White House. Yeah, there was no they. Nobody told him to put that sign that says "farm" in the kitchen. <laughs> you know what we need? <laughs> shiplap. I want shiplap in the Oval, uh, sir. I we I don't know what shiplap is. Fie on you! Yeah, the Property Brothers were like, "This is what you want, but this isn't what you can afford." This is what you're going to get. (laughs) (laughs) That's so great. Oh, gosh, I love that. Okay, well, early on, Monroe embarks on a national tour, of which he had two as president. First Uh, president to do this. This was really cool. Yeah. He's like, I want to go see the country. Yeah, and I thought that was a bunch of points on my book for that, like for him going around. And I can't remember if it was his first or his second, but visited Corridan, Indiana. Hmm. I think it was his second. I could have been the second. But little known fact, was the capital of Indiana. It was. Yeah, Corridan. If you're listening and you have no idea why we're bringing up Indiana... Because we're both Hoosiers. We're sitting in it. We're sitting in India. Not anywhere close to Corridan. Nope. We're in the current capital. That's right. Indianapolis. Uh, he embarks on this national tour, which many hail as the beginning of the, I love this, the era of good feelings. Yeah. Ah, isn't that just mm, nice? I mean, it's not great. It's not bad. It's just it's good. It fills you with warmth. Mm, yeah. Not too much warmth, though. Yeah. Just good. Just I, enough warmth. I would imagine that. There weren't a lot of good feelings on that tour. Like, it was probably super uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, he's riding a horse. and He was in a carriage. Yeah. Not a lot of, like, great roads. And, Mm. yeah. He ended up cutting both of them short because of it. He's like, we got to go back. Yeah. He's like, this sucks. I'd rather be in the still smoldering White House (laughs) than here. I need to check on the progress. Those good feelings started to fade with the economic panic of 1819, which Monroe was essentially powerless over as banks were largely regulated by the states. The guy couldn't really handle the economy, uh, so that kind of stinks for him. Around the same time, the Seminole tribe in Spanish Florida routinely crossed the border and raided American settlements and farms, so Monroe ordered Jackson, remember him, to attack the Seminoles on their home turf. Jackson defeated many, but not all. They are still unconquered. I know this because my parents are both diehard Florida State Seminole alumni uh, and love the Seminoles. They're unconquered. They basically escaped to the Everglades. They said, we're going to go in there. And Jackson and his cronies said, you guys just stay there. Yeah, and there's there's still doctrine to this day that is used by the infantry because of the Seminole Wars. I, I mean, some of it is French and Indian Wars, but because of tactics used by the Indians, mm. there's a practice where you wake up before first light. And I won't get into all the 
hairy details of all the terms and everything. But the Indians would notoriously attack right before first light Hmm. because people would either be still asleep or groggy. And it's also the darkest part of the day Hmm. is right before the sun comes up. So they would do surprise attacks. So now what you have to do is you wake everybody up and everybody has to be on guard. So usually be either... 33% 33% or 50% security, but right at BMNT, you wake everybody up. What's and, BMNT? Uh, before morning nautical twilight, you wake everybody up and everybody's on guard just to make sure that no Indians attack you, even if you're in Afghanistan. Okay. Um, I've done plenty of complaining, like, no Indians are coming, guys. Like, what if you're actually in India, though? Well, then I guess it's possible. It could be. Yeah, I guess I should stop complaining about BMNT. it. BMNT. Now I'm, I'm out, man. I'm just At amazed. night, it's E-E-N-T. Okay. Yeah. Don't Evening. put me on the spot on that. That's okay. Yeah. I won't, I won't it, ask you to unpack But it's BMNT that. and E-E-N-T. Cool. Like, basically right before the sun goes down and right after. Hmm. Yeah. I like this. This is the fun little rabbit trail that we can occasionally go down on this podcast that I love. Yeah. But that's the history behind why we do cool. that. Is that that's when the Indians... Historically, would attack the so Native French Americans. And Indian. I'm sorry. That's okay. So French and Indian and Seminole Wars. Yeah, the Seminole okay. Wars. Yeah, it was, wow. There was a lot of like interesting fighting that happened in the Seminole Wars, and a lot of stuff that Jackson did that we'll talk about that was not authorized. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he he also I think one of those unauthorized things was he secured Pensacola, the Spanish Florida capital. Yeah, which effectively gave the U.S. de facto control over the territory. Finally, oh, gosh. It's about time. Where else are we going to go to for spring break? Good grief. Uh, The Adams-Onis Treaty of 1819 solidified the Florida issue in favor of the U.S. The Federalists at this point, they're politically dead. There are very few Federalists still remaining. And at this point, Monroe uh, faces no organized opposition to re-election, which is why we're calling this episode five of the Presidential Podcast, The Unopposed. The only president to ever run unopposed and win. Mm. Well, I guess the only president to run on the post, obviously. Yes. Though he didn't receive all... I learned this. He didn't receive all the electoral votes. Because they didn't think that it was proper <laughs> for someone else besides George Washington to have a unanimous... They were like, that's disrespectful. Yeah, we can't yeah. We can't do that to George. One dude from New Hampshire. Uh, he voted for John Quincy Adams because he thought Monroe was incompetent. There was one ballot... <laughs> Yeah, one ballot that was not Monroe. That comes into play next episode. People voting for John Quincy Adams when yes. they probably shouldn't. Have. Yes. Oh, we're, I can't wait to unpack. Well, I can. I yeah. can. Because you're gonna was, have to. Yeah, I'm gonna have to. On March eighth, eighteen twenty, Monroe's youngest child, Maria, married her cousin mm. Samuel Governor in the White House, the first president's child to marry there. In the White House. In the White House. Do you think that when he found out she was marrying her cousin, that he asked, how do we solve a problem like Maria? (laughs) (laughs) Because everybody wants a sound of music joke. (laughs) (laughs) And it's, (laughs) you're probably the only person that finds that that great. Well, yeah, I enjoyed choir from time to time yeah. in my high school tenure. Um, How do we catch so- a cloud and pin it down? <laughs> she was also 16 when she got married. 16 mm-hmm. years old. Yeah. Well, Maria was, what, 16 going on 17, oh, right? God, you're the worst. <laughs> you're the absolute worst. But I, dr- I drink to you and your humor. Cheers, Blaine. Wow. In 1820, his 16-year-old daughter marries her cousin <laughs> in the White House. <laughs> 
Uh, how things going, President Monroe? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, it's not, we're not good. I, I need some more wine. Yeah. Who's your boyfriend? Sammy? <laughs> Sammy, your cousin? You know that's incest, right? I'm president. We. That's weird. This is not going to look good in the tabloids. Somebody's going to be in their kitchen talking about this in 200 years. <laughs> it's fine. Just do it over there in the burnout kitchen. <laughs> It's fine. In 1820, uh, though Monroe remained firmly opposed to any compromise that restricted slavery anywhere as the country expanded, just a seamless transition into the Missouri Mm -hmm. Compromise there. He reluctantly signed the Missouri Compromise into law on March 6, 1820, only because he believed it was the least bad alternative for Southern slaveholders. Uh, The Missouri Compromise, if you don't know, temporarily settled the issue of slavery in the new territories. Yeah. And the thing, the biggest thing I took away from learning about this, because I've had some, you know, basic knowledge of the Missouri Compromise, that basically it was the way of them going, okay, well, we'll keep it even between slave states and free yeah. states. So Maine was held hostage during the Missouri Compromise because they knew that there was going to be another free state and they weren't just going to allow another free state before they had decided about Missouri, which was, as we've discussed a large tract of land. Huge, huge, huge tracts of, of land. land. And... Once they passed the Missouri Compromise, they were like, all right, Maine, you can be a state too. Yeah. And they were like, we have Portland. (laughs) We've got the sunrise. We're the first people to see the sunrise. (laughs) We have no professional sports teams. Maine ends up like probably the only other time we'll talk about Maine is John Tyler. Oh, you're jumping ahead here. Yeah. And I don't even know how you're jumping ahead because I haven't read the book at this point. One of two times we'll talk about Maine is right now. Mm. If Um, you're in Maine waiting for us to talk to you, I'm sorry. And probably the only time we'll talk about Antarctica. Oh, man. Do you want to unpack this now? He, well, he had nothing to do with it. It was just kind of auxiliary. It was Monroe adjacent. Antarctica was discovered. Mm. while he was president during his second term. So, Antarctica, Monroe adjacent. That should be their their country's nickname. <laughs> their countries. Their All the penguins. The continent's nickname, Antarctica, Monroe adjacent. When you show up, that's what's on the side hey. in the airport. Oh, man, this podcast is playing. <laughs> the, the Antarctica. It's like they're the only people talking about it. Welcome. Your bags are right there. You're going to have to get them off the plane. Uh, Maine was actually the pine tree state. I thought it was the free state. Oh. So, Russ, can you look up state. what state is the free state? Is it? it ple- this you, is Antarctica's nickname. The ice? The oh. ice. Mm-hmm. The nickname for the Antarctica. That's their hockey team, too. Hope you brought a coat. <laughs> So let's, yeah, we, go ahead. we've got to speed things along. We do. He really maintained his bipartisanship throughout this presidency while he was a, a Republican. A Democrat Republican. Yeah. He went in with the idea, hey, I don't want to play this party game. I right. want to be more like George Washington. Yeah, he was, um, he was pretty pre-partisan. Yeah. Because the Federalists are gone by this point. Right. And... He really maintained that the downfall was that Congress saw everything through a partisan lens. So no matter what he tried to pass that was best for the country, in his opinion, they were like, oh, you're just doing this because you're of a party. And he was like, no, I'm trying to not be. And while he was president, kept really constant correspondence with Jefferson and Madison. Yeah. Mostly through Madison and some of it was 
what do I, what would you do in this situation? You've been in my situation before, but some of it was legal because Madison was an accomplished lawyer and he was like, Hey, I need some legal advice on hmm. what to do about these policies. He did keep a pretty good relationship with both Adamses. Mm -hmm. And then I'm kind of certainly with, with JQA, but I didn't realize with John Adams as well. He just, he saw the value hmm. in maintaining the correspondence with yeah because adams at that point was the oldest guard because yeah. washington had yeah. already done i feel like i'm stealing your thunder as, no. as the host here no that's good dude. Um, i love this the one so there were two things that if you really want to put a bad mark mm -hmm. on the monroe presidency there Go were ahead. really two issues one being being from virginia he was obviously not pro-slavery but not anti-slavery either and so he thought he could come up with a good compromise and his compromise was, well, we'll just round all the slaves up and we'll send them to Liberia mm -hmm. and then they'll just have their own colony there. And then there won't be slavery here and they'll be free there. And it's actually was called Monrovia. Yes. And even though it never happened, Monrovia still exists it is. in Liberia. The, his other big uh, negative mark was his, I guess his native American track record. So he doesn't, get the negativity that a Jackson would get. Mm -hmm. But he basically said, well, Native Americans need to understand they either have to get with the times or take what's coming to them. Yeah. Like that. And I, that's paraphrasing kind of what he said. He but didn't he, actually say that. Yeah. But he, he <laughs> essentially said, we're a, a country that is advanced technologically we have figured out this whole city thing and they either need to be farmers or integrate into our culture or we're going to force it. Didn't he see that on one of his tours too, where he saw or tried to maybe advocate for Native American communities to assimilate as far as the education? I think they're, they might have even gone through some town where there was like some, some Indian pe people who had been... Yeah, and... A couple things. For Go one, ahead. forgive us if we say Indian and it sounds crass and it's that's how it's said in the books and yeah. it's easy to fall into that. We mean Native American, we we mean no disrespect. Yeah. The other side of it is he he is effectively saw that and said, Well, if they could just figure it out and like come with us, right, then we have no problem. But if they don't, I can't just let them stay on this land, which obviously is not great right, right. like it, there there's definitely a different sure outcome that you could come up with there but it ended up it led to that indian civilization act of 1819 which mm. was essentially that which was we will educate we will you know teach you how to either assimilate into being a farmer or a, a skilled trade or yeah. we'll relocate you yeah this is almost i mean 50 years after when edmund Monroe and his presidency maybe 1820 23 1825 is when he leaves office. Yeah, yeah, 20, yeah. It was sorry. The election was 24. 25 was when he left office. I mean, this is going all the way back to Washington, who might have passed the buck, no pun intended. From I mean, because I think John Adams was the first president to meet with a, a, a delegation of Native Americans as yeah. president, I believe. Well, Monroe had history because the reason that we were able to pass the Ohio expansion was because he hmm. had history with Joseph Brandt, 
which was obviously not his birth name. He was a Mohawk chief, and he partnered with Joseph Brandt to negotiate a treaty, which turned into the Ohio Territory. Hmm. So he basically met with him, got on his level, understood his issues, where he was coming from, things like that, and figured out a compromise. Well, in his in in his brain, a compromise to, hey, well, we can come co-live with you. Yeah. And then obviously, you know, people bastardized it. Yeah, but yeah. we still need you to assimilate to what we're doing. Yeah, yeah. So, and once again, we don't want to look at things through today's lens right. and how we should... Uh, you know, think about him. But those are probably his the two biggest stains yeah. on his presidency. I would agree with that. Um, but overall, like, you know, we talked at the onset that neither one of us knew a ton besides the Monroe Doctrine, which we haven't touched on yet. We haven't really touched um, on it. Do you want to dive into that? Yeah, yeah let's do that. Okay. And then let's talk legacy and, yeah. and the legacy of the first five. I love it. Uh, and we'll be right back. You're listening to the Presequential Podcast. Facing the transition out of the military is rarely easy. It doesn't help that the staggering number of options you're faced with can be overwhelming. But there's a light at the end of that tunnel for all veterans. And that light shines brightest here in Indiana. Lucrative careers in fast-growing industries are plentiful. Housing costs are amongst the lowest in the nation. And you can live in the country while being less than an hour from a world-class city. At InVets, we're showing veterans how to translate the valuable skills they've learned to the civilian world while connecting them with careers they can be proud of so they can lead fulfilling, purposeful lives. Go to InVets, that's I-N-V-E-T-S dot org. Create a profile to learn more about Indiana communities, browse the current open job openings in these communities, and receive your free shirt. That's InVets, I-N-V-E-T-S dot org. Hey, we're back. Thank you wherever you are for listening to the Presequential Podcast. His seventh State of the Union address in 1823, Monroe made it clear that America would not allow European colonies to further colonize in the Americas or interfere with independent states. So he is very much in the Jefferson camp of pro-republicanism, pro-revolution. There are several Spanish colonies that are fighting for their own independence, whether literally or figuratively. And Monroe is saying, hey, we're all about that Republican revolutionary spirit. However, we don't want Europe meddling in this hemisphere anymore. This is the 1820s. This Hey, this ain't the, the mid-1770s, bro. Yeah. This, this doctrine really wasn't a doctrine. He did not mean this to become a, a doctrine. Actually, until 1850 did it become known as a doctrine. Within, well, within a couple of years, it was largely not really discussed a ton. It was disregarded in Europe largely. It was celebrated with some suspicion in Latin America. Well, of course... Europe's going to disregard it. They're, yeah, sure. Yeah. And he was thinking, I think, and this is Blaine speaking. Sure. I think that he was thinking about expansion because he did push for Cuba to become a state. Mm -hmm. And he was thinking about that. I forgot about that. that. coastal region of islands, the Bahamas, Cuba, Puerto Rico, and how we could expand Southern. And I think he was thinking, well, if I can get Europe to stop meddling in it, then we can just claim it as ours. Yeah. So, but it did cover the entire South America, Central America. He basically said, if you're coming west mm -hmm. across the Atlantic, like we don't want your, your smoke. Yeah. Keep but, it over there. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting insight too, for a guy who fought in the Revolutionary War. It's interesting what you said earlier in this episode of the seeds of the doctrine starting in him. Yeah. 
earlier on. Also during his presidency, the boundary of US and Canada, for the most part, and I believe the Alaskan, like the Russian mm-hmm. North American boundaries were established. So, I mean, if you've looked at an atlas in the past year, you've got Monroe to thank for a lot of the boundaries that basically were everything west of Pennsylvania over to probably about Colorado up. And then it kind of snakes up to like Oregon. Yeah, there was an odd boundary dispute with Maine. There was no real hard line Hmm. on where Maine ended, and that doesn't come into play until Tyler. Hmm. Interesting. Which is episode what? 10. 10. Okay. I'm still learning the order. That's okay. That's fine. The Monroe Doctrine was later invoked by future presidents such as Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. JFK. Yeah. Truman. Yeah. JFK was a big Monroe Doctrine guy, obviously, because of Cuba. Yeah. Cuban Missile Crisis, which that's a year or so from now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's right. That's a but long way. Both, both Truman and Kennedy invoked the Monroe Doctrine because they were at the forefront of the quote unquote fight against communism, mm-hmm. the Cold, you know, the Cold War. Sure. So obviously they were, you know, trying to, to invoke something that had some sort of precedence to say, well, no, we've actually got something on the books mm-hmm. to say you can't come metal in this area yeah. of the world. But yeah, t- uh, Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson also brought it up yeah. and, uh, way before. That was mostly Kennedy. more Caribbean stuff that was happening, right? With like mm-hmm. Haiti, San Domingo at oh, the time. Yeah. Well, yeah. and then Roosevelt, obviously, with the Panama Canal yeah. versus the Panama Canal was originally supposed to be in Nicaragua. Mm. And there was a big issue with congressmen potentially having some shady dealings, which is why no. I was going to be in Nicaragua. And Teddy Roosevelt was like, I went down there. It doesn't make sense. Panama makes sense. Like, why would he even put it in Nicaragua? And we'll get into it later. I rode a moose into all the, the way next down century. There. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a man, a plan. But yeah, that would, Panama. it would make sense that Teddy would bring it up because of the Panama Canal. Right. But yeah, so overall, I mean, we've got two legacy things to talk yeah. about. We've got to talk about, I mean, the Monroe Doctrine is probably the biggest pro of his entire presidency. And, and the overall about, expansion, I think. Yeah, and, and the overall, but he doesn't get credit for the, like, he's part of it. I think that if you actually dive in and read about Monroe, he gets credit for it. Yeah. If you're just looking at the broad basis of Monroe, he doesn't get the credit he deserves for the expansion. He does get the credit for the Monroe Doctrine. But even then, some people like to give credit for, you know, to other people for parts of the Monroe sure. Doctrine. But I, I mean, you know, knowing nothing about him going in and what I know now, like I kind of feel the same as I felt with Madison. Like I'm yeah. relatively impressed. I was too. One, I mean, if you're going to read through 500 plus pages of the guy's yeah, life. It better be good. It better be good. Yeah. Good grief. <laughs> Let's wrap up his life, shall we? Okay. Okay. So he leaves office in March of 1825, retires to Virginia. He serves on the University Board of Visitors for the University of Virginia. He's still hanging out with uh, Jefferson and Madison, his neighbors. His wife, Elizabeth, dies at the age of 62 in September of 1830. Monroe then moves to New York to live with his daughter, Maria, and her cousin husband, Samuel (laughs) Governor, where he lived until his death until July 4th, 1831. Another July 4th death. Five years to the day after Adams and Jefferson died within hours of one another. That story, if you've, if you've never heard that story, just go look up July 4 president's death in yeah. Google or whatever. We've talked about it. It's, it's incredible. I so mean, this is, 
if this is the first episode you've heard, that's a little weird. It's a little like weird. Like, if you're jumping in, like, I've actually wanted to hear their thoughts on Monroe. <laughs> <laughs> Just a roulette wheel. Oh, number five. Well, yeah. okay, that sounds good. Yeah. So uh, the third president to die on July 4th. I wonder if any presidents were born on the 4th of July. Well, I know that growing up, I saw that movie a lot when yeah. I was expecting to see Bears games. I haven't seen that movie, so I don't even catch that reference. Oh, dude. Okay, so before, you know, like Red Zone and all this, yep. and I'll make this story quick. Go ahead. You had, you had two channels. You had Fox and CBS that showed games. Okay. They showed games at 1 and 4. And if the Colts played at 1, then they wouldn't show the Bears game that played at 1. Ah. They would show the Fox four o'clock game and the CBS four o'clock game and they wouldn't do double headers both. So whatever channel didn't have the one o'clock game, yes. it almost always had Born on the Fourth of July playing. So I've seen the movie Born on the Fourth of July so many times because it was just playing on one of those channels because <laughs> they weren't playing. Uh our our, our oh. friend and vice presidential expert. Gosh, is yes, producer Russ. Uh, Russ, do you want to share? I mean, you can you can, you can drop the knowledge. The only American president to have been born on the 4th of July is Calvin Coolidge, the 30th president of the United States. Mm. Born on July 4th, 1872 in Plymouth. And I'll tell you what, it's not what that movie's about. No, it's not about Calvin <laughs> Coolidge's birth. No, no. It's Tom Cruise and high school football. That's coming out. He, he looks like a future president. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about his, uh, oh, sorry, so he dies July 4th, 1831, buried in New York in the governor family vault, which I thought was interesting. He was he was buried in his son-in-law's family yeah. vault in New York, reinterred 27 years later in Richmond, Virginia, where his tomb now is a U.S. National Historic Landmark. You can go if you're in Richmond, Virginia. Check it out. Uh, another aspect of his legacy is that Monroe is regarded as the last U.S. president who was a Revolutionary War veteran. He is also generally ranked in the top 15 of all the presidents, usually around the bottom of that. He's about 13 yeah. or 14, depending upon the poll that you look at. And also five new states came into the Union while Monroe was president. Michigan, Illinois, Alabama, Maine, and of course Missouri. That mm -hmm. was, those two were tied a lot do you want to recap the independence president's blaine or add anything to his legacy yeah so i think i don't know i necessarily want to go recap the independence presidents i think that what is important to note is you know we're at that transition point yep so i think that quincy is a uh, a good transition point is a good fulcrum Oof, um, gosh, that's a five dollar word because he is the son of an independence president mm. and then when it shifts we have a whole new set of, and a whole new kind of background and thought process from a president standpoint because we're getting into a weird part of the presidents yeah after this i mean we have a president that wasn't elected by the people and then we go into a president that was elected by being a war hero mm. and then we go into this stretch of presidents that's roundly rated at the bottom. It's kind of like eating sandpaper. Yeah. After Jackson. I mean, there's interesting things about all of them. Sure. But from what they actually did and what they stood for, we get into this weird mode. And then you have who most people and most scholars recognize as the greatest president of all time, Abraham Lincoln. And then you go back into another dip. 
<laughs> really? Until Teddy Roosevelt? Yeah, I mean, it, it's just the the eight the mid eighteen hundreds were a weird time. So we have our founding fathers who uh, all but the Adamses, well, all but Adams were two terms. We yeah. we covered a long period of time. They've done a lot of things for the country, whether it's it's make it free, whether it's get England out of here, get France out of here expand the territory and quite a bit of of land and then you kind of get into a place where just not a lot happens yeah there's some bank stuff um riveting yeah there's there's bank bill one there's bank bill two Mm. so it's just it's an interesting like kind of tipping point where we i mean if you look at it from a business standpoint we're at the end of the rapid growth phase Mm. And now we kind of plateau out for a while. And that's not to say to stop listening. and (laughs) Not at all. Yeah, because we're going to find interesting ways to make Van Buren interesting. Oh, I forgot about Van Buren. (laughs) I actually just finished reading that book and I had already forgotten about it. Yeah, but I think that it's, you know, now we're getting into a point where they got presidents who were born when we were already a country. Yeah. You know, and they had aspirations to be politicians Mm. from a young age, as opposed to the folks that we've covered up to this point from a young age had aspirations to be part of a movement. Mm. And so we go from people with moxie to people that were like, well, that seems cool. Mm. Maybe I'll set myself up to go have a cush life doing this. And one of the other big changes that we see is financially at the end of their lives, it's changed quite a bit yeah. because the president is up to now die in boatloads of debt. It's part of the cause because they put their lives yeah. and their livelihoods and their finances towards the cause. And now you're getting presidents that are wealthy and making smart financial yeah. moves and you know retiring pretty sure. happy. I so. think with the exception of John Adams, I want to say he died in the black. Because, I think. But it was because of Quincy. Because Quincy bought the farm. That's right. Yes, yes, yes. Let's talk about some little known facts. Here on the Presidential Podcast, we talk about each president's life, legacy, and little known facts. You ready to dive into these? Rapid fire. Here we go. Uh, Monroe preferred to be addressed instead of as President Monroe, as Colonel Monroe throughout Mm -hmm. his career. He continued to dress in the style of the Revolutionary War era because he wanted people to remember the importance of that conflict. This attire earned him the nickname, I love this, the last cocked hat because the trifold hat yeah yeah Yeah. last president to wear powdered wig and and have his hair tied back in a Mm -hmm. queue uh you mentioned antarctica was discovered in his second term hey look at that a big polar ice cap oh wow wow we should do something with this monroe adjacent (laughs) (laughs) one airport this podcast playing i love that uh he's also the last monroe adjacent airport (laughs) <laughs> Flying in MA. MAA. Uh, if you could please put your seat back and tray tables up. Flying into MAA here. Uh, he's also the last president to have never been photographed. That changes with yep. John Quincy Adams later in his life, obviously. This was cool. Uh, this is a fun fact about his wife, Elizabeth. Through her mother, Elizabeth Monroe was a first cousin twice removed, which I have no idea what that means. The third cousin? To FDR, whose paternal grandmother was her first cousin. That's kind of cool. Those kind of two dynasties somehow match up. Yeah. I thought that was kind of fun. And the first cousin wedding in the White House. Oh, gosh. That's just... It's a lot of cousins. Cousin loving. <laughs> Are you going to the movies again with that Samuel Governor boy? <laughs> you, you mean my my sister's son? <laughs> 
I need to have a talk with him. That's so gross. Wouldn't his sister son be his nephew? You're like, Jonathan, get out of the way. We're trying to have a wedding. Like, no, I get it. Chip and Joanna are coming later. Like, we have to have the wedding. We, 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 don't, we don't need to put the uh, farmhouse sink in right now. Like, I can wait. This is weird. I'm from Virginia, and I've done some questionable things. But this whole incest marriage in the people's house. I don't know why James Monroe sounded like Ron Burgundy in that scenario, <laughs> but he did. Okay. Uh, you mentioned the capital of Liberia, Monrovia, was mm-hmm. named for him. It is the only non-U.S. capital city in the world to be named after a U.S. president. And he's actually known for like multiple cities and counties being named after him. Throughout yeah, I think the there's United like States. 17 counties yeah. in the country. Uh, shout out to Monroe County, uh, Indiana. Yeah. yeah. Just... Uh, what, west of here? A little hop, skip, and a jump. Yeah, not very far from here. If I could be wrong about that, could be East Island. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Blaine, if you could have a drink right now with James Monroe, what would you like to talk about? Mm, that's a good one. I think I'd probably ask him about what, like, his real thought process was around moving people rather than freeing them. Hmm. Both... The Native Americans and the slaves. Yeah. So you had the idea that they, from a human rights perspective, should be freed. Yeah. Why couldn't that work here? Hmm. I, because clearly he had the thought, hey, this is wrong, I, and I agree it's wrong, and I'd like to find a way to do it. And that's how Monrovia came about, and that's how eventually the Trail of Tears came about. And I just wonder, was it purely political? Was it he knew nothing would get passed? Mm. Or was it something that he really felt strongly about, that it, I've founded this and my people now have rights to this area? You know what I mean? I just kind of like to dig deeper into that. Yeah, He's one of the few people that i like to kind of really pick his brain rather than like ask him something about mastodons or something off the, you know what I mean? Like I, I much, my personality, I'd much rather ask some off the wall thing, but I really kind of want to know because it seemed like he really was genuine about understanding the human rights issues there. Mm -hmm. And why couldn't he figure out a different solution? Even though we know it wouldn't have been passed, right? Even if he wanted to. Well, we've got that benefit because we're 200 years after. Yeah. What about you? I, he didn't strike me as a super ambitious man, I, with the exception of wanting to be have president. his own command and yeah. be president, you know, but I, I yeah, think... Yeah, those aren't ambitions. Uh, right. <laughs> wanting to be a colonel. But not like a Hamilton obsessed with his oh, ambition. Yeah. Okay, you know? I see where you're coming from. I, I think I would want to talk to him about what was it like living in the shadow of Washington, Jefferson, to an extent Madison. How would he want to be remembered? And I think that's kind of the big question about this podcast in general is, as we're reading all these biographies, I'm already examining my own life and doing a lot of own self-reflection of just 200 years from now, what do I want? uh, That podcast to talk about. (laughs) Yeah. Clearly, there's going to be one about you. Please, do not subscribe to that. Pitch Perfect wouldn't have happened without you. I, I just think it'd be interesting to learn from Monroe, how do you see yourself in this big... This big scope of things, you're still chuckling about Pitch Perfect. Hey, no, this is an inside joke. I, I would take stuff. it from crossing the Delaware. Oh, yeah. In that moment, did you realize the... That I would have a pair of shorts with you on it, <laughs> doing a podcast, and he'd be like, what's a podcast? Like, maybe leaning into his ear. <laughs> <laughs> leaning into his ear and saying... This is going to be in a painting one day. Mm-hmm. It won't be a, an accurate painting. Yeah. But like also you're going to be in a different boat. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Shouting Krampus <laughs> to the Hesiods. 
I think it's just a broader question about how do you see yourself? How would you have wanted to have seen yourself in the history of America in your presidency? Because he was a two-termer. I mean, he had, a, he had an extent of time. He had a large expanse of time to make Possibly change. Possibly for lack of options, but yes. That's true. But yeah, so we are done with the independent presidents. We are. And this has been exciting. I'm excited to keep going. It's a good time. I'm I like excited it. about finding, like, my, my drive yeah. behind this is finding the exciting parts about the presidents that are coming up. Like the next few, still exciting. And then we're going to get into a point where it's on us. We're going to have to dig deep yeah. to make Zachary Taylor exciting. Yeah. Oh, we're gonna. Yeah. Oh, like please believe my me. goal with the podcast yeah. is like to put on our website one review that's like four stars. They made Miller Fillmore interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Sincerely, Susanna Fillmore. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like I was his wife. Wow, I'm writing uh, from beyond. But we are dedicated to do 1 through 45 and under 90. Yes. And so with that, we will see you on... Yes, uh, March 31st with our next episode of John Quincy Adams. That will be released. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow us on all the social medias at presequential p-r-e-s-i-q-u-e-n-t-i-a-l if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe share and leave a review plain this was a good time russ shout out to you bringing the knowledge with the vps my man thanks guys for listening we appreciate you and we will see you back with john quincy adams in episode six coming out on march 31st 2021